Drilling fluids touch just about everything in the drilling process. We're here to deconstruct the drilling process and drilling fluid concepts to provide a deeper understanding of our industry. In each episode, we'll share information, talk to interesting people, and maybe share a few stories along the way. Welcome to The Flow Line, a production of AES Drilling Fluids, brought to you by Matt Offenbacher and Justin Gautier. Right, welcome to another episode of The Flow Line. Here we are, beginning of 2022. Matt, how's things going for you so far? I mean, the year began. I don't really know what else to say other than here we go, you know? Right. That's so true. And I mean, I'm excited. I think there's lots to look forward to. I mean, we're kicking butt and taking names, you know, lots of stuff in the pipeline, R&D-wise, technology. And, and it just, again, we're continuing to grow, getting more efficient, and just building on already an existing powerhouse machine. It's, it's exciting to see where we're we at and where we're going to be. Absolutely. Cool. So this is an interesting topic, Matt, and I was quite excited to, to jump on it. And mainly because you're never shy to express how you really feel. And so there was a topic that has been recently brought up again, and we had a good episode on Afrons, which we explained what they are, perhaps what they're used for. And you gave a little bit of sort of opinion-based and even probably evidence-based you know, reasons as to why or why not you think they're a good application in certain scenarios. But we're here to really just you know air the wind. And I would love for you to really sort of explain why you hate Afron so much. And not really, but kind of. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's become a running joke just because people keep bringing it up as this exciting new thing. And kind of between that episode and, you know, to this day, I understood it. I felt like I understood somewhat how the technology worked, but I felt like I needed to look at everything I possibly could mm -hmm. just in case I'm missing. I want to be the first to admit when I'm wrong. And so I went back and I read about 30 technical papers, basically everything I could find minus the very academic, you know, kind of things. But I read a number of the patents. I went through everything and it sort of solidified my position that I don't think these fluids really do much. And that's the reason they weren't adopted. Right. But my frustration is that I keep having to repeat myself and explain these things. And, and not only that, but the poor understanding is sort of being repeated. And so these like sort of they're talking points, but they're incorrect. And it's how these fluids are being marketed. Mm. And it's just frustrating because it's like, no, like, let's get the facts on the ground. Yeah. And when you say, I can't really argue with something that someone has chosen to believe when I'm like, well, looking at all this data here, that's not true. Yeah. And so I find that, you know, it's interesting. Drilling fluids in general, I think there's serious conviction towards certain ideas or, or theories or things. But you bring up a good point. And, and aside from Afrons, you mentioned, you know, you looked up some papers. And I think it's important to maybe even just sort of explain when you say papers, these are published papers, correct? Yes. And so for the listeners out there, what makes them credible to where you can sort of sit on that data or that research to say, here's why it's true, for lack of better words. So I think that, you know, it's still okay to publish something and later on the facts will turn out to be that you were wrong, right? So you can't, you can't assume that a paper is 100% fact. However, the things you can do is you can read multiple papers and see if they correlate, you know, different data sets overlap and make sense. And so, mm. you know, you look at the inventors, okay, what are the claims they're making? And then, you know, did they publish technical papers? And sure enough, they did. And then you look at the papers they cite 
and you read those. Right. And then you read the papers that cite the inventors, but because there's, you know, papers that follow that that say, hey, we read their stuff and here's something that builds onto their work. And you start putting all these things together and you can go down this rabbit trail. And if you see the stacks of papers in my office and the mess of note cards, yeah, it tends to end up being, you know, that to get to the end of that trail, at least for me, might take, you know, 30 or 40 papers. And then I end up with a, you know, four inch binder filled with papers with notes and, and everything. And I actually wrote a paper summarizing everything I found myself because I was so frustrated repeating myself that I thought, let me put together everything, cite all of these other people, mm-hmm. and then we can just send that to customers or other people who don't seem to get like the big picture sure. and establish our position so that when we have a conversation, we can say, look, this is kind of where we're starting from. And if you want to refute this, let's start off your arguments against that. Right. But at least we've got a place to start beyond the marketing materials. Okay. So that was essentially a literature review that you put together? And yes. Like, okay. Gotcha. And there's a lot of stuff out there. I mean, you can go to Google Scholar. There's a lot of free papers, AADE. Matt, where are some other sources? If, if folks that are interested in this type of research. There's a number of SPE papers. SPE, you know, even if you're a member, you still have to pay for it. I, I mean, I was looking, I think I read... I'm trying to remember how many papers I read. I think I read over 200 papers last year, which at $10 a paper, the trick is if you read a lot of them, you can buy these like 50 paper packs that are cheaper and that sort of thing. And Mm -hmm. thankfully, nobody really questions where my rabbit trail leads. So I'm (laughs) I'm able to spend a little bit of money educating myself. But, you know, Google patents, you can read the patents there. Those, Those can offer a little bit of insight. And then, you know, but I would say ADE and SPE are pretty good. The interesting thing with Afron's is it was kind of a government-funded research project, so mm. there's actually like a 120-page document put together by Fred Grocock that's just available. I'll just Google it and download the PDF off the, I think it's the NETL website. Interesting. So, okay. I mean, there's a bunch of freely available, you know, documents, clear, consistent data, and there was a lot of money put behind the development. So, right. You can put a lot together on this because I think it was much more of a, I don't know, academic exercise, if that's the right way to look at it. Sure. Because there's not as many field cases, which is another argument as far as whether this stuff is worth it or not. But the field case histories are then the next thing you look at and you say, okay, who's who's talking about using it and being successful? Right. And even if they say, hey, this fluid is great, what do they actually say in their paper? So if Afron's prevented losses because they used Afron's, but they also use 60 pounds per barrel of calcium carbonate while they were drilling, <laughs> which one did it, right? Like, so yeah, yeah. you have to be a little skeptical of the way these things are published, right? but it's all there, hopefully. Right. No, and, and that's a great point. And I wanted to preface with that just because, you know, maybe some folks out there, when, when we say paper, are we thinking like a Wall Street Journal article? Mm, or are we talking, yes. you know, a LinkedIn blog post? You know what I mean? It's just, just to kind of help. Because again, before you know, over the last few years, you know, I've had to look at different papers and things like that for whether it's school or work, whatever. But before then, I didn't really know what a quote unquote paper was. So I just wanted to kind of help folks out there get a better idea in case they weren't familiar. Because I know I wasn't leading up till, like I said, recently. But anyway, the topic for today, why does Matt hate Afrons? Well, again, kind of, but not really. But here's, I think there's questions that I have that'll help clear the air. So I guess the first question, Matt, is is from your perspective, do they really lighten the fluid? Can you elaborate on that? Because I've heard you talk about that before. So I think the immediate thing is everyone says, ah, well, I'm actually lightening the column, but I don't need to have a sacrificial string to inject air. And, uh, you know, this is really cool. But it's very clear in the literature that's not what's happening. Okay, so and and there's 
physics behind this. There's math. So you have a surface mud weight and you say, oh, I have, you know, seven pounds per gallon. That's lighter than, you know, my base fluid. I've lightened the column, except for that's at 14 PSI ish, you know, surface pressure and temperature. Right. There's this thing called Boyle's law. P1 V1 equals P2 V2. So if I have a, you know, pressure and a volume under one set of circumstances equals, you know, higher pressure, proportionate volume reduction to make them equal. So Boyle's law. So let's say I have a 250 micron bubble. Literature says, you know, at surface, literature suggests that below about 50 microns, it starts to collapse or 4,000 feet TVD. Mm. So I don't really have that level of aeration. Number one, number two, you're taking your surface mud weight and you might not be getting what's actually represented as like a pumpable fluid. So gas wise, you might have between eight and 15% by volume at surface or as you pump it down right. by volume at surface, right, of pumpable fluid, except for that P1, V1, P2, V2, like the gas shrinks a whole bunch. So volumetrically, you have a lot more base fluid. And so in effect, it's a very small reduction. And it's so when you're talking about lightening your column, you're talking about a couple of tenths at most. And so it's not your surface mud weight. You know, that's why when you drill with air, you're constantly injecting fluid. Right. And you see this, there's a paper published where they have PWD data. And the PWD data basically shows that the downhole pressure is exactly the same as the base fluid. Okay. Nothing changed. Wow. So they didn't lighten the column. The other one, there's another paper where they published basically their math of exactly, you know, every TVD gas volume. And it more or less shows you, yeah, it really doesn't take off much mud weight. The thing is, the idea behind Afrons was never to lighten the fluid per se. Right. And granted, we've, you know, when, when we were putting out our last one, we, we sort of had a little bit of a miscue on part of that just by way of, you know, I told Addie, you know, hey, we're going to do something about Afrons. And I didn't really give her any, like, information. Okay. And she said, oh, these are gas bubbles. You know, they make it light. And Tom Brookie, who's one of the inventors, was actually like, on LinkedIn, was like, actually, that's not really how it works. Oh, and wow. I was like, you know what, you're absolutely right. We just... Miscue, lost in translation, but apologies, you're you're correct. Wow. So yeah, they don't lighten the fluid, and nobody's really attempted to make that claim. Mm. Although now I'm seeing this stuff marketed as fluid lightening technology, or I don't know, I, I just see some confusing things out there, and maybe there's more to it that I don't completely understand. I'll qualify that, but if we're just talking about Afrons, they don't really do that. But it's the first thing you'd think because it's bubbles, right? Yeah. The idea was lost circulation material where I don't need to know the size of the pore throats because the bubbles will go into that space and expand and form a seal. That was the idea, but it wasn't that I reduced my risk of losses by reducing the hydrostatic column. Right. Gotcha. So, that makes sense to me. And if anyone out there, like like you said, Matt, you know, the gentleman, what was the gentleman's name? Tom Brookie. Tom Brookie, you know, he came on LinkedIn and said, hey, here's the deal. This is not exactly what, what it's for or whatever. You know, here we are kind of, you know, coming back to something that we may have made a miscue on, like Matt said. But if anyone out there either has experience or wants to say, well, no, you know, based off the technology that we're using, I think that's, you know, again, what's great about the podcast is we can, we're open to these conversations. Like, I definitely don't claim to know it all. Matt claims to know most of it, but not everything. <laughs> Joking. But you know, again, I think these are, this is important to have conversations to either debunk or to clarify to where nobody hopefully is misrepresenting technology and it's being mismarketed or whatever the case. But at the end of the day, it's a, it's a form of educating everybody. And so this is great. So these are good conversations to have. 
The next thought is the data used to justify them is not the formulation used in the field. What do you mean by that? So most of the formulations I'm seeing right now are basically like xanthan gum and a bubble generator, which is fine. I mean, those are key components. However, the actual formulations that are used in most of the research that people say, aha, this stuff works, use like five pounds per barrel of xanthan gum, like 10 pounds per barrel of starch. Mm. The low shear rate viscosity, many of the publications say that the low shear rate viscosity has to be over 40,000 centipoise to even work, which some of these fluids may or may not be there. But most of the data that says, ah, look at Afron's work, it was like 190,000 centipoise. And the big knock was, yeah, that's really cool, but these fluids are so thick that it may be these Afron bubbles stopping losses. It very well could be the fluid so thick that it just doesn't want to invade anything anymore. And Mm. so if you just look at the cost comparison of using a fluid as, you know, kind of as suggested in the literature versus what we're mostly seeing, the formulations versus what the actual technical claims are, they're different. And, you know, one of the big important things they talk about is bubble stability, bubble half-life. You know, there was one patent that originally kind of came up with the concept and there was a follow-up that added more stabilizers and that sort of thing. And I would go to argue that part of the reason that you had to add more stabilizers is because the original formulation wasn't holding up. I mean, I don't know, and I should phone a friend and find out more. Sure. But those added stabilizers included all this other stuff in the formulation, and they specifically state that if you don't have this much starch and polymer, the bubbles aren't very stable. Mm. And so if we're not adding all of the polymer and starch that they're saying you need, then our bubbles probably aren't very stable, and so we're not even getting the loss prevention effect, which means we're sort of back down to... I put xanthan gum in a fluid and added a bubble generator, but can I really cite the contribution of the bubble generator? Ah, that makes sense. How would you describe some of the base cases that are out there? So I think a lot of this, I would argue that sort of the base case is weak, is that a lot of this stuff right now is being used in workover applications and that sort of thing. And one thing I've learned from talking to production folks is they don't know anything about fluids, which is fair because I don't know anything about production. But when you talk about working over and cleaning out wells and that sort of thing, it tends to be done at very low cost. It tends to be done with coiled tubing, very limited equipment. And lo and behold, what you find is that they're doing this as cheaply as possible. So we've talked about in the past where HEC is really, it doesn't suspend anything. It makes fluid thick, but that's about all it does. Its suspension properties are horrible because it's a linear polymer. But they might be using HEC or, you know, some other polymer that doesn't really work, but it was inexpensive. So they, you know, pumped some sweeps of it as they drilled out frack plugs or cleaned out a well. And it was just kind of seemed to be like I'm doing something. Mm -hmm. But most of the effect was circulation, you know, pumping as hard as you could with clear fluid. Well, lo and behold, if you were to swap to xanthan gum, which has excellent suspension properties, you would probably have lower friction pressures and you'd get all that stuff out of the hole. So is it, at least in these workovers, and look, I don't know, someone call me out, but is it I use xanthan gum when I was traditionally using polymers that don't do anything and practices that weren't really effective? But yeah, you know, the Afron generator was there too. Like, was it that you know, you get to claim attendance without, you know, actually doing anything. Mm. 
And, you know, my observation in the past, especially, you know, shoot, seven or eight years ago when we do, do frack plug drill outs is the coil tubing folks were just blown away at the idea of a continuous circulating system with xanthan gum in it. They couldn't believe that they could get all this material out because what they would do is they would drill two or three frack plugs and then they would drag the BHA back to vertical and circulate to, you know, circulate out all the material yeah. and then go drill two or three more plugs. And that was basically how they clean it a well. It took forever and these laterals have gotten longer and blah, 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 right? Mm. Well, stick pipe, I mean, granted, you know, it's not that much better. It's a heck of a lot better in coil, at least. But it's still fairly limited in what you can do from a whole cleaning perspective. At least, you know, you can do a few more things, but it's skinny pipe. Right. You know? Hmm. So I think that when I mean the base case is weak is I think what folks have been doing is they've been using these substandard, you know, poor polymers and weak practices. And then they go step into like a proper system and it's like, oh, wow, this works great. And it's like, I've been talking to production folks for almost a decade now about what an opportunity there was here, but, you know, they were reluctant to spend the money. And then, you know, when you talk about day rates on equipment and that sort of thing, it would pay for itself if you just try it. Yeah. But the other challenge was if you asked a mud engineer to go out and, hey, could you help run this or make sure the you know products are right or whatever, on a workover application, typically the mud engineer going out with their like six speed viscometer, that terrifies everybody because they've been doing this stuff like pour a jug in the 10 barrel tank and pump it. Yeah. You're starting from there and then they show up with a six speed viscometer like, what, what the heck are you doing? And the mud engineer gets out there and they're like, what the heck are you guys doing? Where are my pits? Right. And so you just have this huge disconnect. And so I would surmise that perhaps there's a chance, and I don't know, that that may be part of this, you know? Yeah. I mean, again, if, if anyone disagrees or, you know, wants to sort of question it, Matt won't cancel you. He'll embrace the conversation. I mean, I'd love to have, like, that's the thing is, I'd like to know more. And I've been wrong before. It wouldn't wouldn't be the first time. You know, generally I like to be wrong quietly and, you know, less publicly. But, you know, that being said, it's one of those things. I think my ego could take the hit. It's good. Like, it, this is fun. Like, we're trying to make this comical. But what Matt's saying is, is, again, he's obviously done the research, read the material, and is trying to understand it top to bottom, side to side. So, again, this is good. And these are some questions that, you know, a few of us around the office had. And so it's good to talk about them and and hear Matt speak on his behalf because he's the one who's actually done the research. Again, so formation damage, that seems to be a common topic of discussion amongst Afrons. Is that still a thing or where are we at with that? So, I mean, a bunch of the argument that it's not damaging, which we'll do something on formation damage <laughs> soon enough and hopefully we can bring Lee into that. And that'll be another really, if you think this is cynical, Stay tuned. <laughs> but, you know, our argument from a formation damage perspective has always been that the minute the bit enters the reservoir, you've altered it and you've damaged the formation. So the word non-damaging is technically incorrect. Right. Minimally damaging is what you want to go for. You want to damage it so little that it makes no appreciable alteration in production. But that being said, formation damage is still a thing from the perspective of even the return permeability tests that say that it, oh, look, we got 85% return perm. On these sets, because we got rid of the solids, right? We we limited our invasion. You did, but you also injected a bunch of polymer into the formation, which xanthan gum is branched. It likes to stick to everything, and so it doesn't want to flow back, and it's between you and your oil. 
And so, you know, a lot of folks, I think in these workover applications, they're using a breaker that, you know, a little oxidizer to break it down, which is fine. But the system on its own, I mean, the argument is I could apply a breaker to just about anything as long as it reacts with my chemistry. And we've talked a little bit about breakers in the past. So this isn't really particularly special, but the fluids on their own have, we see this all the time. You have this, oh, 85% return perm. That's a really good number. And you're like, okay, my return permeability test suggests that I only have, you know, people would argue 15% flow restriction or damage. So 85% of it's good. That's usually considered a really good number. However, your flow initiation pressure or the pressure required to actually initiate to start flow through that core mm. is 50 or 100 PSI. And this core plugs like an inch across. So 50 or 100 PSI, the amount of drawdown or how hard you'd have to pull on the well to actually suck all this stuff out of the way is so high that it's not coming back. Right. Your production's not coming. And so it's like, well, yeah, like on the equipment, I can show something that doesn't look too bad, but you're not going, this isn't as non-damaging as you say. That doesn't mean you can't work with it. It doesn't mean it's not operable. It doesn't mean that applying a breaker or something won't work. It's just making the claim requires some qualifications, and I don't ever see those qualifications. And I'm one of those people that gets hung up on those details and probably should learn to get over it. But since this episode is my tirade, I'm going to go ahead and throw it in there. <laughs> right. No, and so you should, Matt. Okay. Yeah. And so it, you mentioned Fred Grocock, but would you say there's any fluids experts that really endorse this technology for what it's being marketed as today, generally? I mean, no. And I don't want to put words, take words out of anybody's mouth. Fred is somebody I should probably call and talk to about this and probably should have before we even did this episode, quite honestly. But Fred's retired. I don't want to bother him. And he's one of the nicest, most humble human beings you'll ever meet. And his name's on a lot of this stuff. He's one of the people that I consider when we talk about technical papers, if his name's on it, I'm going to read it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely brilliant individual. And certainly a lot of things we do with drilling fluids today are because of things he did 15 or 20 years ago, or, or even more recently than that. But there's a number of people from that era that were in the development of these things that are pretty well known in the industry. And you can go look up their names. I'm not going to, you know, I, I don't want to, I don't want to draw them into my personal, <laughs> you know, baggage, but um, <laughs> a number of these people have gone on to be global fluids advisors for big oil and gas companies. Some of them have gone on to do, you know, a number of other things, but in my professional interactions, I haven't encountered anybody who has extensive knowledge of the system or maybe even was in the ground floor who developed it, who's asked to use it. Mm. And to me, that's, you know, a head scratcher. Yeah. Nor do I bother to bring it up because we're, we're talking about different things. But I feel like many of these folks have been in positions and scenarios where one would argue this might be a tool in the toolbox and it's not even part of the conversation. And so, you know, after the initial rollout, the literature sort of goes silent outside of academia. Occasionally, you'll hear some people, you know, here and there, you'll hear a paper that talks about a success story. You read it. It's not quite clear that it was as successful as claimed or that, you know, Afrons were central to the success. Sure. But look, we're, you know, we're all selling. I get it. I don't blame these folks. But from a technical perspective, there's no ringing endorsements going around by the people that I, you know, I really listen for 
and want to know. And, and even if they're not, even if they're retired today, yeah. I still want to know what they knew 10 years ago because they've forgotten more than I'll ever learn. Yeah. But I just don't, I don't see them going nuts over this stuff or, or getting as excited as maybe they initially were. Right. And to me, that's, I don't know, it gives me pause. Sure. And rightfully so. And with that said, again, if there's anyone out there who has questions, thoughts, or, you know, if they want to, heck, have a friendly debate about this stuff. I mean, because that's one thing I think would be neat is, you know, a, again, Matt is certainly well-spoken and, and he can articulate his position, in my opinion, better than most in the mud industry. But if there's someone out there who just wants to respectfully disagree and has a good position as to why, like join us or, you know, hit us up and, and we'd love to have conversations. That's how we learn. And, and so, and I'm speaking for Matt. I mean, I'll debate anybody, but probably not as well as Matt from a technical side of things. No, I mean, I welcome the conversation. Like, I think the hard part for me is I want to understand, like I'm trying to right. wrap my head around this. And, and my frustration has just been that when I've tried to, a lot of the voices were, we weren't having the same conversation. Mm. And so it's okay, well, let's look at all the data and just tell me if I'm missing something, because this is the best I can understand. And it's not that my position can't change or evolve, that I can't learn something. I just can't put this all together. And the more I try, the more I can't get answers. <laughs> and so at that point, I say, okay, this this probably isn't something that I should actively you know, pursue. Sure. And that's fine. It, you know, sort of a, I remember we were talking about low ECD or flat rheology muds and I was presenting in front of a prospective customer and I, I explained like, look, I don't think this presents the value in your shallow unconventional well that it might in deep water. And so like, yes, it's available in the same way. Yes. If you want an Afron system, I can get you one. Customer's always right. Sure. That being said, and, and we'll do everything we can to make it work. But that, I just said, look, I, I don't know if you're going to get the value you think you are, but we certainly make it available and, you know, do everything we can. But, you know, let's engineer this thing. And somebody said, no, I think they're better than you're claiming. And I disagree with you. And, you know, it was in front of a large group of people. And, you know, of course, you don't, you don't really know what to say when you're presenting. And somebody like in front of everyone is like, I think you're wrong. Right. And so I sort of made a joke, like, do you want to fight in the parking lot afterwards? Or, you know, <laughs> something like that. And, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like... I was like, man, uh, like I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Let's, you know, yeah. probably probably best taken offline. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, that's great. I didn't know that, but it's good. Conversations need to be had, and if there's things out there that Matt feels that can be looked at differently, obviously he's going to do it. And this is a good place for us to voice these thoughts and educate people on, you know, our position on it. We're coming in hot here, folks. Obviously, 2022 is starting off with a bank. So stay tuned for next week. Hopefully, we can get Lee Gray on the show, and he's going to talk formation damage, which he has a very strong position on as well, as so does Matt. And hopefully, I can be the moderator on this exciting journey as we enter 2022. Please leave a review and share this with a fellow friend, anyone who is interested in Afrons. Hit us up on LinkedIn, like I said. You can also email us at theflowlinepodcast at asflues.com. If you have any questions or if you have any ideas for a show, if there's something going on on your rig or whatever the case may be, the episodes generally are great when we have folks engage with us, ask questions. That's where a lot of the good content comes from. And with that said, everyone, hopefully everyone's enjoying 2022 so far. And until next time, see you later. Take care. Thanks for listening. Please tune in next week for another exciting episode of The Flow Line. 
And remember, may your returns always be full and your trips always smooth. Views expressed in this program belong to participants and not their employees. The program is for informational purposes only and cannot take the place of seeking professional advice. Copyright AES Drilling Fluids.